as we begin today, I want to draw your attention, and I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can because I really don't want to have you sitting too long. And my husband told me that he started late because somebody else was late. So this is a chain reaction thing that is happening here. But I'm going to try to go as quickly as I can without the material being indigestible. But I want to draw your attention to the story of the paralytic by the pool because today we're talking about addictions. And addictions are very real. There are all kinds of addictions. And uh, basically the same thing is happening in the brain with an addiction, with whatever it is, but they're real, they're problems. And people have problems. Wherever you go, you're going to meet people whose lives are all bound up because they're just, they're stuck in a rut. We want to understand a little bit more about that today. But remember, if you're one of those people, and if you want to reach, or if you want to reach out to people who have had problems or who are having problems, remember the story of the pool of Bethesda. How many years was that man by the, laying by that pool? 38 years. And we know from the context that it was his own choices that put him in that position of being paralyzed from the neck down. And when Jesus walked by and saw this man, it says he saw him and saw that he had been there a long time. And more and more we're seeing kids 10, 11, 12, 13, 14 years old who have, had a, who have been involved in addictive behavior for five, six, and seven years already by the time they are in their early teens. All kinds of problems that they face. And, and sometimes we have people that have been into an addiction for 30 or 40 years. What is the message of this story for those people? He asked this paralytic, he said, do you want to be made whole? First of all, he saw where he was. He saw his condition. He saw that his choices had brought him into that miserable state. But he asked him, do you want wholeness? And did the man want wholeness? You know, that's the most important question. It seems kind of redundant, doesn't it? Uh, but the real truth of the matter is, is that it's more about attitude than aptitude. It's all about attitude. And I see this more and more as I work with people on a daily basis, that I have to find out what their attitude is before I can start giving them fix-it lists. So often we're so excited about going in with a fix-it list for people. But I want to find out what it is that they know that they're not doing and why they're not doing it first. And what are they? next thing I want to find out is what are you willing to do? And then I can begin to add some support and encouragement to that person. Well, Jesus healed that man, didn't he? After all those years of self-inflicted worthlessness and people that have addictions feel hopeless, helpless, and worthless, and they need deliverance. But it's really interesting. You know, in, in uh, our church, if we saw that kind of an amazing deliverance, wouldn't we, I mean, wouldn't we jump out of our chairs at least? I mean, wouldn't you do something like that? I'd be so excited. I, as conservative as I am, I think I would jump if I saw somebody that had been paralyzed for 38 years uh, be revived and restored. Well, we'd have a testimony meeting and a fellowship dinner, and we would just have a grand time. We'd call the local newspaper in. Well, Jesus didn't do any of those things, did he? He went to that man. It's in John chapter 5. And if you look at verse 14, what did he say to the man? He said, Behold, you are made whole. Go and sin no more, lest a what? Worst thing come upon you. And I remember Dane and I were driving to a business appointment one evening, and I was having the, the worship he was driving. And it just struck me as I read that story. And I looked at my husband and I said, Dane, what could be worse than being paralyzed from the neck down with no one to help you? 
And he, he looked at me. He didn't miss a beat. He said, being paralyzed from the neck up and not wanting help. That's what's worse. <laughs> and isn't that worse? So in the morning before your feet touch the floor, do an attitude check. The Lord can take care of you if you give your attitude to him, no matter how long the addiction has been. And we need to understand that he can even change our attitudes, can't he? He can put a hatred in our hearts for the things that are destroying us. And so we have much encouragement today as we look at this topic. Today, we are looking at the basic addiction, food addiction. And let's just see what science is beginning to tell us about addictions, about the addictiveness nature of certain types of foods, and how we can avoid that trap, because it does lead to other kinds of dependencies. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. All right, let's get these lights down here. My pointer is working today, so that's really nice. We're taking a look at obesity, food cravings, and food addictions. I've had to pare this down, uh, so we're not going to get into the genetics of obesity as I uh, would normally, but what we cover today will be, will be sufficient uh, to understand the topic that we need to look at. Albert Hubbard said this. He said, habit is the great economizer of energy. And that's true. Habits are good when they're our friends, right? Habits help us repeat safe and effective behavior, perform multiple tasks with minimal effort, increase task speed and accuracy. Whenever you learn a new skill, you learn it in the higher centers of the brain, and then it's pushed down to the lower cortical centers where the behavior becomes automatic. If you're in an airplane and something goes wrong in the airplane, do you think the pilot has to pull out his manual and look up what to do and figure it out? I don't want to fly with a pilot like that. How about you? They have been through hundreds of hours of stimulus response, stimulus response, stimulus response, until when certain things happen, the behavior is automatic, how they respond. So habits are really good things. It frees mental, uh, habits free mental resources for challenges and change. And this is one of the dilemmas of addiction, is that when a person becomes preoccupied with their addiction, they don't have mental resources or the cognitive capacity or energy to engage in other kinds of challenges. And so their world gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller until there is nothing left except that one thing in their life. In our book, Living Free, Finding Freedom from Habits That Hurt, which will be out by the end of this year, there's, we have a chapter on television addiction, and there's a story in there of a police officer, happily married man, well, at least he was happily married, happily, he was, he's a married man, full-time police officer, three children, 71 hours of television a week. 71 hours. And he said, I can't get away from the set, and I just don't get out very much anymore. And so these things are very, very real. Driven behavior is a very real phenomenon. But good habits help to build consistency and security into our lives. Have you ever moved, but you keep driving your old route just automatically without thinking? Has anybody? I'm totally that way. I don't pay any attention to my surroundings when I'm driving. Um, and so this is a big problem for me. When, when, when I went back to meet my husband in... Where did you live? Maryland? Your parents? Tacoma Park, Maryland. They sent me to the corner store for cornflakes, and I wound up in Manassas, Virginia. They thought I stole the car. (laughs) 
two hours later, I called them from a different state. It was just horrible. Anyway, we are still searching for the food to correct this problem. But Abraham Lincoln said this. He said, certain habits of men are like luxurious vines. They destroy the trees that they decorate. Now, in the normal brain, we t- if you were at this morning's meeting, you learned that through the um, limbic area of the brain, sensory in- information comes in, and it acts like a percolating system to, to stimulate coordination, vision, sensation, movement, judgment, reward, perception, place, um, logic, reasoning, and all of these things work in harmony to create this active mechanism that we call the mind. But in addictions, you have several areas that become very overactive and overengaged. The ventral tegmental area, the nucleus accumbens, and the prefrontal cortex, which is typically involved in planning and orchestration of activities. When it becomes overactive, the drive to, to organize becomes a compulsion. And this is where compulsions um, are formed. Now, drugs of abuse increase dopamine in the, uh, the synapses of the brain. And these are the, this is a presynaptic neuron. Here's the dopamine. Here's the dopamine receptor. It's released under normal circumstances. You know, when Dane and I see each other, we welcome one another. There's a, a release of dopamine. It's, it's a feel-good hormone and, or neurotransmitter. What happens, I, I had the privilege of hearing a, a scientist from Philip Morris. He, is, he was a special witness during the trials when Philip Morris was being sued because of uh, the, the nicotine addiction, the addictiveness of cigarettes. His sole job was to um, create cigarettes that were more and more addictive, and they used laboratory rats in order to do this. Now, after testifying, he is under federal protection. He is under FBI protection uh, as a result of his testimonies for the rest of his life. And it was very amazing listening to him. He explained about nicotine addiction, a typical addiction. And when you work with people, there's a lot of misunderstandings about what creates an addiction, how it happens, why it lasts so long, why there is a relapse, and what is going on. He said it takes anywhere from three to six months to develop a nicotine addiction. And what happens is that in the brain, let me go just a couple slides ahead, drugs of abuse, such as nicotine, increase the concentration of dopamine in the brain's reward circuits. Now, here is an illustration uh, using cocaine, but it's the same thing with nicotine. What happens with nicotine, if you watch someone smoking a cigarette, you'll notice they'll take a puff off the cigarette every 30 seconds. You can just look at your watch every 30 seconds. It takes seven seconds for nicotine to go from the lungs to the heart to the brain. Bang! Dopamine release uh, from the presynaptic neuron. And what happens is it causes a flood of dopamine to be released and a cascade response of the I feel good hormone like happy Pac-Man's going all over the brain creating this rush. Well... Over time, as the addiction progresses, a person builds tolerance. What is tolerance? Tolerance means that you need more and more of the substance in order to get the same reaction. So what happens is these little receptors begin to die away so that you need more and more of the dopamine to find the receptors. And so what happens, when a person stops smoking, it only takes 30 
hours for the nicotine to completely leave the system. The drug is gone in 30 hours. So one would think, logically, that if you get this nicotine out of your system, you should be fine. And at this point, I'll ask our, our, our um, participants and guests, what, ha what has happened? Why is it that it's so easy to start smoking again after a person has the nicotine cleared from their system? Just 30, a little bit over a day. What is, what's going on? What do you think is going on? What's going on? Somebody usually says psychological. Well, what's happened is, is that the neural, uh, the, the, the neural um, uh, pathways of the, of the brain have actually been altered. And so now, in 30 hours later, you have strawberries or you pet the dog or whatever it is that would cause a normal release of dopamine. And dopamine is released nor and in a normal amount from the presynaptic neuron, but the way uh, Dr. Uh, I can't remember his name, the, the way our scientists described it is it's like putting on earmuffs. So now the receiving neuron cannot hear the message of I feel good. And so even though there's, an, there's a normal amount of dopamine for normal function, the receptors are not there to hear it. So the I feel good message now becomes I'm depressed. I'm anxious. And when dopamine levels tend to be low, there's, there are always these counterbalancing uh, neurotransmitters in the brain that keep equilibrium. And the, the equilibrium neurotransmitter for dopamine is norepinephrine. So if do, dopamine levels are tend to be low, norepinephrine levels tend to go high, and it creates anxiety, driving that person back to the compulsion to smoke cigarettes. And it, left without lifestyle intervention and the interventions that we know about, do you know how long it takes for the brain to return back to normal? Ten years. And that's why people can smoke for three, four years, and then all of a sudden, just like that, under a crisis, the right factors come together, and bang, they're right back on the cigarettes. But the good, the good news is, is that there are about six different kinds of dopamine receptors in the brain. There are dopamine circuits through the, the frontal area of the brain, different areas of the brain, and our lifestyle message, our Bible message of, 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 of the way that we live stimulates Com compensatory dopamine in those areas of the brain. Isn't that just great? And also the Lord rebuilds very, very quickly uh, as we actively understand and engage in lifestyle change because the brain is highly plastic, and that doesn't mean credit card plastic. Plastic means changeable. It's very malleable. And so it responds very quickly to environmental inputs. And that is good news. Now, classic addiction is defined as the compulsive need for and use of a habit-forming substance characterized by drug tolerance. And we just discussed what that is. And what else? Withdrawal. What is withdrawal? It means you're having a physiologic effect because this substance or activity is being taken away from you. Did you know when televisions are removed out of homes, hostility rates go up about 50% in the homes? They are conditioned. There's a conditioning that is going on. Addictions are learned behaviors. And when you have exciting behavior that, uh, 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 or anything that is very stimulatory, it actually uh, causes the release of another neurotransmitter, glutamate. And glutamate solidifies memory. And so it's very, very important to understand that glutamate and dopamine are involved in learning. And as we 
optimize lifestyle choices, we optimize learning and the learning of good habits to override those bad ones that have hijacked our executive uh, control. Now, this is an amazing statement. Drug use is not a necessary and sufficient cause of addiction. Does your body make its own pain-killing hormones, neurohormones? Does it? Does anybody know the names of some of them? Endorphins, enkephalins, have you heard of those? Opioids, dopamine, serotonin, these are all very important in mood modulation, as well as some other things. It's interesting, low dopamine is not always associated with increased risk for addiction. Scientists are beginning to understand now that it's the ratio of the balancing hormones. In other words, if a person has naturally low dopamine levels, but it's but it is properly equalized by norepinephrine, they're not going to tend to to be at risk for addictions. And we need to remember that there are genetic and environmental factors that are associated with uh, the risk of developing addictions. Uh, is it possible to be genetically prone to an addiction? What do you think? Yes or no? Absolutely. What about environmental? Can you be raised in an environment that actually makes you more susceptible to addictive behavior later on in life? Now, the thing we need to remember about this, and it's very, very important, is that association is not causality. Capiche? Do you understand what I'm saying? Association is not causality. Now, in my particular case, uh, coming, I was born from a very depressed, severely depressed mother, raised in a very violent home, beaten up all the time. I was a runaway. I fell into that category. I was at risk, both genetically and environmentally, and I did develop a very, very severe food addiction and also was a runaway and did all that other garbage. And so I'm thankful today that for the reshaping power of the human brain as we accept the power of God into our lives our background and our genetics come under the dominion of God's kingdom. And as we begin to act on those principles, it actually has a shaping effect not only on uh, us emotionally and spiritually, but it also has a very profound effect on gene expression. And this is an amazing thing. We'll learn more about this as we go along. But Howard Schaefer from the Division of Addictions has said that drug use is not a necessary and sufficient cause of addiction. It is improper to consider drugs as the necessary precondition for addiction. So um, um, you take anorexia as an example. Anorexia is not an addiction to food. It's an addiction to starvation. Our creator has designed us so that when you feel a certain degree of pain, what does your body do? What does your body do when you're in pain? It produces morphine-like substances called opioids. And so the pain of starvation becomes addictive because of the opioid production. Can a person become addicted to violence? Have you ever met somebody like that? They're just addicted. They just jump from one crisis to another. Anger addiction is very real. Crisis addiction is very, very real. People actually get addicted to these kind of situations because it creates some kind of a relief. Now, this is Brian Knutson from Stanford University. It stands to reason that if you can derange brain circuits, isn't that what we were just describing? Deranging brain circuits with pharmacology, which is drugs, you can do it with what? Natural rewards as well. Now, the new definition of addiction includes persistent compulsive behavior that is harmful or destructive, characterized by an inability to stop. 
Now, this is a, a statement by Dr. John Rady. He's a neuropsychiatrist from Harvard University. He's an amazing uh, scientist who has made it his specialty to study the, the uh, neurology, neurobiology of addictions. And he's written a book called A User's Guide to the Brain. And it's quite a good book. Uh, of course, he's not a Christian, but the scientific information in this book, so, so much of it is in exact harmony with the biblical principles that we believe. And these are new trends in neuroscience that are absolutely thrilling to me as we see the spirit of prophecy in the Bible validated by people who do not even profess belief in God. He says, during abnormal behavior, such as compulsive overeating, the neurons get stuck in a rut of abnormal patterns of activity, becoming underactive or overactive or just non-performing, it being either too easy or too hard for them to fire. And, and that's talking specifically about that orbitofrontal area that is involved in the development of compulsions. Now, this is from uh, Mark Gold, McKnight Brain Institute. University of Florida. What is the difference between someone who's lost control over alcohol and someone who's lost control over good food? When you look at their brains and their brain responses, the differences are not very significant. The purpose of the Lifestyle Matters program that we've put together called Living Free, Finding Freedom from Habits That Hurts, involves not only the textbook and DVD that uh, my husband has put together and all of the other materials to do a lifestyle program. What we want to do is we want to help people to build a bridge back to the power of choice. Because believe it or not, friends, it is really hard for someone who has an addiction it's hard for them to hear, well, it's just a matter of choice. It's just a matter of choice. You just need to choose. We need to understand that addictions are so real. People lose their jobs. They lose their lives. They lose their health. They lose everything they have when they have these addictions. And we need to understandingly know how to help those people build a bridge Back to the power of choice. Are you with me? If we can activate that, if we can build that bridge so that they can activate the power of choice and begin to implement it in their life, then we have really accomplished something. And I mean, it's just going to give you an example of how real these food addictions can be. I was talking to a young, pregnant, diabetic woman. I love speaking with people when they're in the early stages of chronic disease. I'm so thankful. A gentleman came up to me after the earlier program. He said, please emphasize that, that these diseases are reversible, that repair and, and renovation and recovery are just so real. And I said, yes, I, I'm so sorry. I really didn't emphasize that enough. And it is true. But how much better when we can catch something early? Uh, before damage is done. Well, I was talking to a young, newly diagnosed, type 2 diabetic pregnant woman. And she was raised in Adventist, kind of left it, got careless, and just did her thing. And now she's married, pregnant, and diabetic. And she wanted to talk with me. She said, you know, I just, I have this diabetes. And so I was gentle with her, but I wanted to be sort of forthright with her. And I said, well, do you realize that, you know, now that you're carrying this baby... Uh, there are some lifestyle things that you can do to lower your insulin levels and actually either manage or reverse this diabetes. It's really critical because as that baby's brain is bathed in those high levels of insulin, it is going to change the genetic switching in that baby's brain and make it genetically predisposed to heart disease and diabetes later on in life. Oh, yeah. I just love Del Taco. 
Yeah, I just, you know, I have a hard time. And I said, well, it actually can affect the baby's intellectual performance as after that baby is born. It, it actually can have an effect on many, many indicators for that child's health later on. <laughs> I just, you know, Sarah Lee Cheesecake is my thing. She laughed. And I said, and do you realize the progression of this disease in your own life? Diabetes is a disease that we don't feel. You don't feel what's happening, but subtle changes are taking place in the ability of your body to pick up fluid and waste products. And so you begin to have these problems with what's called perfusion and kidney problems and circulatory problems. And then you begin to have neural degeneration so that you, you start having neuropathy and you're facing amputations and you begin to you begin to develop this hardening of these little arterioles which affects your vision and the touch and feel of your fingers. You get icy fingers and feet. And she just said, yeah, I know. You know, she said, but I just, you know, my pizza is like, I love my pizza. And I, and I went home genuinely upset. I was upset. I was so upset. But I realized that this woman had an addiction. What's one of the hallmarks of addiction? What's one of the first hallmarks of addiction? Denial. denial. She was in complete denial as to the seriousness of her condition. And as health providers and healthcare people, we work with people and plead with them and exhort them and describe the horrors of what they're facing, and they go home and they do the same thing. So what I found now is that I help people to understand that they have an addiction and how to break that addiction, and we're seeing better progress, better recognition that this really is a problem. Mark Gold, again, we've taken the position that overeating is in part due to food becoming more refined, more palatable, more hedonic. Food might be the substance in a substance abuse disorder that we see today as obesity. And we're going to see, today we are focusing on environmental factors. That's what we're going to take a look at today. There are many factors that play into obesity, overweight, food addictions, food cravings, and so we're, today we're going to look at that. Uh, addictions are multifactorial. It involves genetics, behavior, and the environment. Now, not all food addicts are overweight, and not all overweight people are food addicts, but although separate disorders, they are overlapping and related. Now, what is obesity? how is obesity defined? Overweight is a BMI, body mass index of 25 to 29.9. Obesity greater than 30, morbid obesity, uh, BMI greater than 40. The way you figure it, please don't do it in class today. The way you figure BMI is you take your weight, multiply it by 706, and divide by your height in inches twice. And that'll get, now I would like to meet the person that figured that out. Okay. But uh, anything over a, a body mass of uh, 25, 25 or more is considered uh, risky. Risky. If you promise not to do it in class. <laughs> yes, okay. Body mass index is 706 times your weight divided by your height in inches twice. Your weight in pounds, yes. Okay, you can figure out what your body mass index is. Now, it's not totally accurate if you're a big muscle-bound person. But uh, basically, this works for a lot of people. It's one indicator. It's one indicator. There are others, you know, skin fold and different things. Now, let's take a look just visually from 1985 onward. This is from the CDC of obesity trends. The light blue 
is less than 10% of the state is overweight or obese. Darker blue, 10 to 14%. Let's look at this progression up to 2002, I believe we're going. 1986, 87, 88, 89, 90. 1991, we have a new category, 15 to 19%. 92, 93, 94. This can't be genetics, friends. <laughs> we're not rabbits. <laughs> 95, 96, 97, a new category, greater than or equal to 20% of a state obese. 1998, 99, wow, that was a banner year for McDonald's, I guess. It's like one cardiovascular surgeon said, he said, most of my patients need quadruple bypass. They need to bypass Hardee's, bypass Wendy's, bypass McDonald's, and bypass Arby's. <laughs> There's 2,000. 2001, now we have more than 25% of the, the state overweight or obese. Yes, and there's been a new category. I think Mississippi has been added now. Uh, obesity factors, we don't have time to discuss the thrifty genotype, but those who tend to put on weight easily do not have metabolic errors. Generally speaking, only 1% to 2% have inborn metabolic errors, such as Prader-Willi syndrome and some of these other things. Very few people have thyroid disorders that cause uh, obesity, and even when they do have thyroid problems, it usually amounts to only 5 or 10 pounds. And so the thrifty genotype is actually uh, a theory that says that, uh, for instance, in the South Pacific Islands, 7 out of 10 adults suffer from either obesity or diabetes. It's an amazing statistic. And, and so... What has happened is during, when you have hurricanes and cyclones and all of these things that cull the population, the population that's left tends to be extremely hardy. They tend to convert energy extremely well. They tend to be slightly insulin resistant genetically. They are absolutely fine. As a matter of fact, they are genetically superior in terms of survival. There is nothing wrong with these people. I love to tell overweight people, there is nothing wrong with you. There is a lot that's right with you. So the issue is not a genetic error. The, the issue is you take a person with a really thrifty genotype, which is a great thing, and you put them in a sedentary society, and you help them to be inactive. Just remote controls can uh, put on 10 pounds a year, just all the remote devices. You lose 100, you, you, uh, you, you do not burn 100 calories a day just with all the remote devices. I saw a guy using a remote control to close his trunk the other day. I mean, we, we're going to lose our digits if we don't start to use them to do something. So the real issue with the thrifty genotype is that when you put them into a Western uh, environment, it just wreaks havoc for these people. But they're normal people. There are emotional factors. There's the chemistry of cravings, which we are going to spend some time talking about. We want to look at manufacturing, marketing, and our sedentary society. Remember, the battle is not for the bulge, it's for the brain. It is not about weight control, it's about appetite control. Because a person can be thin and be completely out of control in their appetite. As a matter of fact, it's been estimated that 20% of normal weight individuals are insulin resistant because of their lifestyle, because of their dietary habits. Now, this is a very famous uh, researcher in the area of uh, addictions, Nora Volko. Once a person has experienced addiction, changes have taken place in the brain that involve multiple circuits. And we're just going to quickly go through these because 
I don't want to... Uh, what time am I supposed to be done? Oh, forget it. 5.15? I mean, I can talk fast, but... Well, we'll go... I, I don't want to mess up the pro, your program, but... Dopamine, serotonin, opioids, GABA, glutamate, norepinephrine, stress hormones, and appetite regulatory hormones all significantly affected in food addictions or any kinds of addictions. And food addictions actually have the appetite regulatory hormones that are affected more than in other kinds of addictions. So these people need special care and understanding. These circuits involve reward, palatability. We'll talk about that. Motivation, drive, memory, conditioning, learning, stress and mood, self-control, and compulsion. But isn't the Lord good? Can he rewire that circuitry? As we begin to implement those tools, it's an amazing thing what God can do. As we develop a full understanding of the neuroregulation of appetite, I think the addictive nature of foods will come clear. And I think that we will learn that these addictions can develop at various stages of life. And I think we will learn that they are very, very powerful. They're very powerful. People, it comforts people who have food problems to hear that. In a strange kind of way, it's a comfort to know that somebody understands how hard it is to change these habits. Let's talk about the chemistry of cravings. Habituation to calorie-dense foods does occur. When habituation occurs, you have dopamine levels that surge after an eating episode, and other neurotransmitters are involved, but we're focusing on dopamine right now. Serotonin shoots up. And norepinephrine levels go down. Well, as you become habituated to calorie-dense foods, the dopamine and serotonin levels do not rise the same way that they did or to the same levels that they did before. So norepinephrine, which is the counterbalancing neurotransmitter or neurohormone, it begins to go up, up, up. And so now, without more and more and more, you have nervousness, anxiety, the jitters. You're cranky. You ever been on a diet? Have I just described a dieter? Jackie Gleason said the second day of a diet is the best because by then you're done with it. (laughs) Large concentrations of sweet and fatty foods do affect hormone signaling, and we're going to talk a little bit about that. Long-term, we have long- and short-term appetite control mechanisms, short-term Mechanisms work within seconds of taking in food. Uh, you have stretch receptors, volume receptors. You have uh, different neuropeptides that sense the caloric content and what, what it is that you're taking into your stomach. But there are also long-term regulatory signals that send the I am satisfied message. And to a person who has become dysregulated, they can literally eat to the point of being completely stuffed physically stuffed, but they still have the urge to eat. They're still hungry. They're still thrashing around in the refrigerator looking for that that thing that's just going to hit that spot. But they never t- t- they're never able to find that spot is the problem. Especially leptin, ghrelin, and insulin are affected. Now new studies are showing that fat, high-fat content, uh, affects cholecystokinin and neuropeptide Y, which tend to be shorter-term regulatory hormones. These things, the body becomes less sensitive to these signaling hormones. There is good news. Do you know what it is? When we begin to make high-fiber food choices 
it begins to reinstate those regulatory hormones so that the I am satisfied signals begin to work so that you can take a bite of something sweet and say, wow, that's enough. Or if you take something really rich, you go, whoa, I don't want any more. Isn't that just a dreamland for some people? But we believe that we can get you to the point where that's reality, and that's the way it should be. That's Peter Havel, um, endocrinologist from UC Davis. Now, I already described to you about the big gulp. Remember the 64-ounce soda that has 135 grams of fructose? And in order to get that much fructose, you'd have to eat 30 peaches. A peach only has 4 grams. A banana has uh, seven and an apple has nine. So you can see that there's quite a difference when you take a, a pharmacologic dose of a macronutrient. And it's really interesting, and we don't have a lot of time to discuss this today, but table sugar is a disaccharide. It's a dimer made up of two molecules, one molecule of glucose, one molecule of fructose. Well, there's been a big drive to increase fructose consumption. The average American consumes 68 pounds of refined fructose a year. The logic behind it is that fructose is better. Is it better to have fructose in the fruit? Is fructose in the fruit different than the big gulp? Okay, it is different. But the idea uh, is that, well, if we take fructose, it's better than sucrose. And as you can see, the trends from 1970 to 1997, table sugar consumption has gone down. But look what's happened to fructose consumption. It's just skyrocketed. The thought behind it being that uh, pure fructose does not stimulate insulin production, so therefore we're just going to be able to eat all these fructose-sweetened cookies and cakes and fructose crackers and fructose pies, and we're not going to have a problem with hyperinsulinism or too much insulin in the system. Well, there's a real downside to this. First of all, most people have a mix. They'll have, a, they'll have cookies and a candy bar and soda and all kinds of things that release that have sugar and insulin in them, and so they're going to have insulin production. But the other thing is, is that insulin is a very, very important appetite regulatory uh, hormone. And large amounts of fructose play havoc with liver metabolism. As a matter of fact, the liver is not equipped to handle that much fructose. It, do, it bypasses the metabolic controls that, glu, that sucrose has to go through. It enters at a different place in the metabolic pathway to break down that sugar. And so what happens is it, it, it uses an enormous amount of liver energy called ATP. And the breakdown product of this ATP is adenosine monophosphate, AMP, which breaks down into purines, so it's strongly associated with the development of gout. And plus, if a person is, has too much insulin, the body is not able to take the glucose into the muscles for energy production like it's supposed to. There's an alternate pathway that immediately occurs to protect you and keep you alive, and that's called triglyceride formation, and it, the body stores it as fat. So a high-fructose diet can't creates a metabolic shift toward the production of body fat. Just what you always wanted, right? Now let's look when we take the fiber out of foods and just compare calories. Let's look at calorie dense or calorie sense. You can have an, a little tiny chocolate bar, that big. How many of you can you eat in five minutes? Six? I mean, it's not hard to eat three or four donuts at a sitting. Or you can have an 8-ounce chocolate bar, 25 carats. 5-ounce chocolate bar, or 3 pounds of apples. 
If I ate three pounds of apples, you'd probably just call me a name and send me home. You can have one cheeseburger or 25 cups of popcorn. You can have a milkshake or five bananas. How about a Danish or an apple, banana, orange, and half a cantaloupe? So you see there's quite an amazing difference. Now, there's also research showing that basal metabolic rate on a high-fiber diet is actually throttled up so that the resting metabolism, and most energy burning is really has to do with resting metabolism. Seventy percent of the calories we burn have to do with just sitting there, breathing and carrying on body functions. But the resting metabolic rate of vegetarians is actually higher. That's good news, isn't it? There's also some early research showing that thermogenesis or fat metabolism is increased on a plant-based diet, that there's a shift toward more efficient energy burning on a high-fiber diet. Now, evidence of sugar addiction has been documented in rats. This shows us that you can have a perfectly healthy, normal rat from a happy family and develop an addiction. Not all addicted people have psychological problems. They usually do as a result of their addiction, but not all people who suffer from these types of problems come from dysfunctional environments. And we need to recognize that. We have to stop looking for a problem that may not really exist. Rats that were fed a diet containing 25% sugar are actually thrown into an anxiety attack when the sugar is removed. What they do is they put the rats on a diet. They starve them. And then they put them in a cage with regular chow, and they have a choice. They can either have the regular chow or a glucose solution. Which do you think they're going to choose? The glucose solution. Why? It's the same reason a dieter will just give up and run to the vending machine and get a moon pie. Because your dopamine levels go down, you're irritable, your, your serotonin levels are down, you're feeling bad. And what's going to give you the quickest boost? Straight sugar straight sugar, and they actually became habituated to it. There have been num numerous uh, studies that have shown this. Because palatable food stimulates neural systems that are implicated in drug addiction, intermittent excessive sugar intake, remember we're talking about excessive, might create dependency as indicated by withdrawal signs. These rats, when they don't get their sugar uh, high, they bite each other. They start biting each other's tails, and they get really nasty. Now, it says here that highly palatable foods and highly potent sexual stimuli are the only stimuli capable of activating the dopamine system with anywhere near the potency of addictive drugs. The brain is getting addicted to its own opioids as it would morphine or heroin. Drugs give a bigger effect, but it's in essence, it's the same. This says that mere exposure to pleasurable, tasty foods is enough to change gene expression. Genes produce proteins. Proteins drive neurochemical reactions. And it suggests that you could become addicted to food. Adults that were offered... Now, this, also, this particular study shows that when you have too many choices at a meal, it can promote overeating and addictions. Adult rats that were offered bread and chocolate in addition to their usual lab diet increased their intake of calories by 84%. And after 100 day, 120 days, they increased their weight by 49%. Have you ever... You know, you want to get your money's worth when you go to... What is that place? Ponderosa or Sizzler or... You have Ponderosa here? Some of these food places? Food troughs. They're just 
aisles and aisles and aisles of food troughs. So you go in and you get every other thing because you want your money's worth. You go and eat it and then you go back for seconds and you get, you play leapfrog and you get the ones you missed. Well, that really confuses signaling hormones. So you need to make a decision before you go into the restaurant. I'm going to have two entrees, one vegetable, one salad. Okay, and I'm going to share my dessert with four people. <laughs> Rats who overindulge in tasty foods show marked, long-lasting changes in their brain chemistry similar to those caused, caused by extended heroin or morphine use. The findings have been proven again and again in studies of addictions to drugs and overeating, although it's unclear whether pre-existing dopamine abnormality leads to addiction or vice versa. Now we're going to get into our fast food section. It's quick. I'll try to do it in five minutes. I really apologize for talking so fast, but, you know, what can I do? Americans now spend more money on fast food than higher education, personal computers, computer software, or new cars. They spend more on fast food than movies, books, magazines, newspapers, videos, and recorded music combined. So we have a challenge out there, don't we, to educate. Yes, we have found the weapons of mass destruction. <laughs> it's called supersize it. Go for giant. Go for the big. Double it. Just a, for a few pennies, you can get one-third more food and a thousand more calories, you see. Now, there are more than 10,000 new processed foods made annually. 99% of the flavor is in the aroma. Aromas are measured by machines to one part per billion, but the human nose detects one part per trillion. Hundreds of chemical aromas are added to enhance the flavor of these prefabricated foods. The flavor industry revenues are $1.4 billion a year. The, the, the can costs more than the soda pop. It costs more because it's just flavor enhancers and sugar. The, um, this is a strawberry shake. You're looking at a strawberry shake. Okay? Now, when you drink one of these strawberry shakes, you will have the exquisite sensation of standing in a strawberry patch. But my question to you is, would you please identify the strawberry for me? Now, some of these... Constituents are actual chemical constituents of a strawberry. It's some of the esters in the strawberry that, that produce the aroma. But a stack of boards doesn't make a barn, does it? Where's the nutrition? Where's the fiber? Where are the seeds? Where are the pectins? It's not there. So where is the real satiety? Where's the fiber? It's not there. Now, this is not mis misspelled. There's a whole science called rheology. My husband has defined rheology perfectly. He said rheology is the science of taking nothing, adding almost anything to it to make it taste like something. That's what rheology is. There are very sophisticated texture analyzers that calculate the bounce, creep, breaking point, density, crunchiness, chewiness, gumminess, lumpiness, rubberiness, springiness, slipperiness, smoothness, bounce, creep, softness, wetness, juiciness, spreadability, springback, and tackiness of the mechanically created foods that you consume that are so scrumptious that you can eat them. They don't crack. They don't drip. They don't break. You can eat them while you drive. You can eat them while you work on the computer. They are no muss. They're no fuss. You can just shovel it in. I went to see my doctor 
and we were talking about my weight. My weight has gone up a little bit since I've been working at the gym, which is a really good thing. My spine density has gone up 5%, which is a really good thing. And I think I've gained a pound of fun, but <laughs> it's not too bad. <laughs> He's fine with it. And I was telling him about how I do workouts. Beg your pardon? Thank you. <laughs> I, I, uh, I have some arthritis issues here, and I was telling him how I work out to keep flexible. And he said, the only workout my patients get is this. He said, that's it. He was amazed. We had a good talk. And so that's what these texture analyzers are for. The complex flavors and textures are achieved using fermentation, enzyme reactions, fungal cultures, tissue cultures, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so this chemical wizardry, wizardry creates this exquisite sensation of high palatability. But there's, the nutrition in there is calorie-dense, very nutrition-poor. And it actually works on the addiction circuits of the brain. I think people need to know that. I think they need to put a fence around those kinds of foods. And here's what, in addition, here's what happens. The enhanced somatic or sensory experience on the lips and tongue from these highly palatable foods actually, um, uh, it, it, it enhances sensitivity in regions involved with sensory processing of food, and it makes the food more rewarding and contributes to obesity because now the plainer foods, the regular foods, no, do not produce that exquisite sensation. And so there's a remodeling that has to occur as we learn to enjoy the fresh foods. It's like when you remodel your kitchen. It gets ugly before it gets better, but it's going to get beautiful. It's going to get beautiful. Because foods with high palatability tend to have high energy content but are not satiating, um, what happens is they develop addictions. Here's a 10-gram day. This is the average consumption of fiber is 10 grams a day or less, 8 to 10 grams. This is what a 10-gram day looks like. Egg McMuffin, coffee, orange juice. Burger, fries, soft drink, pie. Pretty typical. Dinner, chicken, green beans, iceberg salad, roll with butter, 5 grams if you eat every sesame seed. That's a 10-gram day. That's what it looks like. Clinical, <laughs> clinical evidence shows that increasing fruit and vegetable consumption actually is a very effective strategy for weight management. Why? Because we're not concentrating on fat grams and portion size. If you reduce the portion size of one of those meals, are you going to be hungry? Even if you're getting the right number of calories, are you going to be famished? Yes, because not only is your hormone signaling not being healed, but you're not getting enough fiber. And so we want to look at a 45-gram day. We should get 30 to 50 grams a day. If you're overweight or diabetic, you should get upwards of 50. Breakfast, oatmeal, fruit, whole grain toast, nuts, black bean soup for lunch, mixed green salad and a bran muffin, dinner, brown rice with tofu, veggie sticks, sweet potato. Doesn't that sound good? You won't be tempted to snack during the day with that. It's good food. And in our addictions book, we're coming out with a whole section called Health in a Hurry, How to Eat Healthy When You're in a Hurry, Fast Food, Buy It on the Road, What Can You Do? We've got some good advice in there. We want our diet to look more like this. Looks good, doesn't it? Okay, plant-based benefits. Less risk of obesity, hypertension, temporal atrophy. We talked about that this morning. Cognitive impairment. All of these diseases, 30 actually, but I couldn't, didn't have time to list them all. But improved weight management, 
weight, less weight gain over time, higher satiety, better nutrition, improved hormone signaling, endocrine balance and stress response restored, improved mood, and improved immune and overall health. Does that sound like a nice plate of food to you? It's not about deprivation. It's about adding to your diet. Isn't that good news? All right, here's Dolly Dimples. She was, in 1950, she was considered the world's most beautiful circus fat lady. She weighed in here at 550 pounds. She consumed 10,000 calories a day. Her best friend was Baby Jane, or Baby Ruth. She, cons- she was 900 pounds. Um, she went to the doctor. The doctor said, Dolly, if you keep eating this way, you're going to kill yourself. She went home and opened her Bible, and she read the Bible verse that says, all of a man's labor is for his stomach, but the appetite is not satisfied. And she said, that's me. So she changed her eating regimen completely. There she is. She lost three of herself. There she is at 120 pounds. She lived into her 90s. She played golf. She was active. She said, I used to sit on the sidelines. Well, she did lose her career. (laughs) But she was a very happy, beautiful, fulfilled woman. So life is not over when you've had a problem. Amen? (laughs) All right, strategies for success, vigilance, education, support, power of choice, readjust your values, and God's power. That's what our programs are all about that are going to be available early next year. You can do a program for the community and help people to change their lives. Dr. Rady says this, changing your pattern of thinking changes the brain's structure. Who changes our pattern of thinking? God does. He doesn't even know that. The brain is not just a computer that executes genetically predetermined programs. It's not a passive gray cabbage, victim to the environmental influences that bear upon it. Genes in the environment interact continually to change the brain from the moment you are born until the time you die. And to the extent that you allow it, uh, you can actively shape the way your brain develops throughout the course of your life. We are not prisoners of our genes or our environment. Poverty, alienation, drugs, hormonal imbalances do not dictate failure. Wealth, acceptance, vegetables, and exercise do not guarantee success. He says this, our own free will. Doesn't Ellen White say we've not understood the right action of the will? May be the strongest force directing the development of our brains and therefore our lives. Experiences, thoughts, actions, and emotions actually change the structure of the brain. By viewing the brain as a muscle that can be weakened or strengthened, we can exercise our ability to determine who we become. Can you say amen to that? Uh, We're going to have to skip this. The Bible says, let not your behavior be like that of this world, but be changed and made new in your mind. Isn't that the same thing that Dr. Rady is saying? So that by experience, this is called experience-based plasticity. Every time you make a choice, that experience alters your brain chemistry and genetic switching. Of the good and pleasing and complete purposes of God, if you're in Christ, he says, you will be made new. And those new choices will be etched upon your material self. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things are become new. Our last slide. With the ability to shape our brains comes the ability to shape our destiny. Thank you. Let's have prayer. 
I'm going to have prayer for supper, too. Shall I? Would you like me to do that? Thank you for this time, the encouragement of the power of your word, the way science is validating your word. We ask your blessing upon our evening meal. We pray for a desire and a will to do according to your plan that we can reach out and help others to learn more about the freedom that is in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.